Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. The topic of this week's sermon podcast is miracles, a topic which raises a lot of interest, discussion, and sometimes confusion and doubt in the lives of people on their faith journey. This week's gospel tells the story of the first miracle that Jesus ever performed, the familiar story of Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding ceremony in the town of Cana in the Galilean region of Israel. This tale comes at the beginning of the Gospel of John and therefore sets the tone for the following story of Jesus' life and ministry. The story begins. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. And Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to their, the chief steward. And so they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine, after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. Here ends the gospel. The story of Jesus turning the water into wine stands as one of my favorite Bible tales of all time. For one reason, it was an old standby text when I performed weddings. It was one of the few Bible passages that describes a wedding, but it also provides a great image for a couple about to get hitched. You save the best wine for last. I know it's corny, but weddings are occasions not usually given over to subtlety or deep meanings. The real reason that I like this story is that it contains some wry humor. Remember, the Gospel writer John tells us that this is the first miracle that Jesus ever performed. So you'd expect something dramatic, right? Like holding back a tidal wave with the raising of his hand, raising somebody from the dead, or at least healing somebody's acne. But no, Jesus pulls off a cheap parlor trick that any magician worth his salt could have done. I reproduced it myself on a Sunday morning children's time by pouring water into a clear pitcher 
in the bottom of which I had concealed some grape Kool-Aid. The little kids oohed and odd and loved it. The bigger kids rolled their eyes, and it failed to establish my reputation as a miracle worker. It's also funny how Jesus is roped into performing the trick. He seemed to be enjoying himself at this wedding, the wedding bash, and quite a bash it was. They've run out of wine, and Jesus is called upon to conjure up, listen to this, 120 to 180 gallons more wine. Jesus' mother points out to him, they have no more wine. He gives her kind of a snippy answer. What's that got to do with me, Mom? My time hasn't come. And Mary plays the stereotypical Jewish mother you would expect to see in some modern sitcom and ignores his protests and tells the people, Ah, my son, the miracle worker. Don't worry, he'll do it. Just do what he says. Now here I picture Jesus doing an eye roll, giving a sigh and saying, Okay, fill the jugs with water. And actually, jugs or jars is something of a misnomer. I visited the traditional site of the well in Cana, where some of these ancient types of ritual vessels found in an archaeological dig there are on display. They're more like large basins chiseled out of barrel-sized stones. Anyway, the jugs are filled with water from the well without so much as an abracadabra. Voila! They have enough wine to fuel a real party. Not only that, the wine steward, I guess we'd call him a sommelier today, who is unaware of the origin of the wine, even though the servants know, he tastes it. Sacre bleu! He's amazed that the host has saved this fine Galilean cuvée for last. Some things never change. After the guests get drunk on the expensive wine, they usually pull out the cheap stuff. And there you have it. Jesus' first miracle, done and dusted. Now, you have to pardon my irreverent telling of this tale, but John had to be a little tongue-in-cheek when he composed this ditty, and I bet the Jewish scribes who transcribed it must have had a chuckle or two. Humor was not alien to Hebrew scripture and storytelling. John was being intentionally clever, though. In stripping the story of serious content, putting it at a party, he shifts the focus from the result of the miracle to a sign of Jesus' transformative power. That's the focus of all of Jesus' miracles in all four Gospels. The products or the results of the miracles themselves are secondary to the manifestation of Jesus' healing and saving mission for all humankind, not just a wedding party. They're to build up faith. But also buried in this story is a message of abundance. Jesus draws, draws upon a relatively unlimited resource, well water, to create something of high economic value, wine. It's a value-added product. He's essentially just speeding up the process. 
Normally, wine is the produce of fertile soil that God provides, the wine plants that God created, the water that irrigates the vineyards came from creation, and the grapes that the vines produced to be converted by naturally occurring yeast cells into the wine that was a staple of life in the culture. The wedding at Cana can serve as a parable substantiating something Jesus says later about his missions. I come that they may have life and have it in abundance. When we talk about miracles, we tend to get hung up on the content of the really big ones, the dramatic ones. There are stories of Jesus healing blind people and lepers, Jesus feeding large crowds and casting out demons. Jesus demonstrates his power over storms and even raises people from the dead. Now, these are important stories, but when we put our faith in miracles as only a way to solve our own problems, we risk disappointment. Why doesn't Jesus answer my prayer and heal my aunt's cancer? Why can't I pray and have Jesus bring my dad back to life? The problem, I believe, is that we're putting the cart before the proverbial horse. We need to focus on what I'm going to call the little miracles, or we could call them everyday miracles, that our wedding story draws attention to. Ones that we see all the time. As we shall see, we may think of them as little miracles because they're common, a part of creation, but they are anything but unimportant. The people of Israel made a practice of calling awareness to miracles, very intentionally, that shows the providence of God, the maker of heaven and earth. Take this reading from Psalm 36. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your judgments are like the great deep. You save humans and animals alike, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. All people may take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Most of us take just an opposite view of God's providence, although we probably don't think of it in those terms. We don't see the miraculous in God providing everything we need. Instead of being grateful for the abundance that God provides, we are fearful of the scarcity that God might allow. On a planet that is generously covered with waters, boundless deeps, we hear of droughts and fights over water rights and we worry. We're told that the Colorado River soon won't be able to supply the needs of the thirsty Southwest. We rely on the sun for free warmth and energy, but we face the uncertainty of global warming. We haven't found the thermostat to control seasonal extremes. We have visions of our great coastal cities submerging as the melting polar caps raise sea levels. All these factors 
contribute to famine and death by natural disaster. No wonder we fret about it. Environmental anxiety is universal. People with an environmental perspective see climate change as a direct existential threat and not confined to any ideological group. The planet is becoming unlivable and we face the extinction of humankind. Those who see the world through an economic lens feel that the environmental action threatens their ability to make a living and ultimately stunts economic growth and will lead to lowered standards of living. Of course, there's truth to be gleaned from both points of view, but attaining a balance between the two requires a deft balancing act, a skill that we have great difficulty in achieving. The reasons for our environmental crises lies not in God's providence, but in human irresponsibility. To put it in religious terms, we have failed in our stewardship of creation. After God finished the creation of the earth, God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish and the sea and the birds of the air and every other living thing that moves upon the earth. And God says, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in it for fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has a breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Here's a side note. Did you ever notice in the creation story that God created us as vegetarians? It's a little later on, meat eating comes on. Go back and reread that story. It's kind of interesting. Anyway, it is important to note that when God says to have dominion over the earth, that he impl implies continued caregiving. Creation is a continuing, ongoing event not one and done. We can see this in the cyclical nature of the seasons and the growing of crops that sustain life. Creation not only sustains life itself, creates it. It continues to grow and thrive and create abundance. In the Genesis creation story lies the first miracle that God performed for us as human beings. He provided us with everything we need, not only to strive, but to survive in perpetuity. This is where the phrase divine providence comes from. God provides. This is what Adam and Eve were presented with in the Garden of Eden. God said that he would provide them with everything they needed with one simple condition. They were not to eat from the specifically designated tree in the garden. Well, you know how that ends up. They succumb to the temptation to eat that tree because they don't trust the generosity of God's providence. Maybe there's more out there we could be having. They want more. And their reaction to the first miracle of God 
is the first sin against God. This tendency to betray God's providence is repeated while the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. God agrees to send them daily manna to fulfill their nutritional needs. They were to harvest the manna that God sent them every morning with God's assurance that they would have what they needed each day. Don't worry about it. Don't put any away. They were to eat each day the ration that they have and not leave any left over. Guess what? Some of the people didn't trust God to renew their supply daily and laid some aside for the next day. And the food that was left over spoiled and became infected with insects and vermin. And Moses was angered by the people's disobedience, their lack of trust. Now, the only exception to the rule was that the day before the Sabbath, they were to gather two days' supply because they weren't allowed by God's law to work on the Sabbath. Once again, the people fail to obey. Out of greed or their lack of trust, they violate the Sabbath and go out to gather when they should be resting. Guess what? There was no manna to gather. And God becomes angry and says, How long will it take you? How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? Fortunately, God forgives them and the people learn to obey for a while. And God continued to provide manna for 40 years. Met their needs in the wilderness for 40 years till they entered the promised land. Now, let's go back to Cana. This story tells not only of Jesus' first miracle and the abundance of wine he created. It really tells the story of God's first miracle creation that God will eternally provide for us under our stewardship and care. And he'll provide us with the good stuff. God not only provides us with material gifts, but he provides us with spiritual gifts. In his letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul enumerates some of these gifts. He writes, To one is given the spirit of utterance of wisdom, and another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another a gift of healing by one spirit, to another working of miracles. God has gifted us with scientific knowledge and the wisdom of how to use it. In our lifetimes, we have witnessed what can only be described as miraculous advances in science and technology to help us steward creation. Advances in genetics and agricultural sciences have allowed us to increase plant yields to feed the earth 7 billion people. Medical technologies and treatments keep pushing back against illness and disease. We're living longer. Environments are developing ways to provide for our energy needs without fouling our own nest. Labor-saving technologies can provide future generations with material blessings and time to enjoy them. The list of modern miracles is seemingly endless. And there's only one thing in getting in our way, and I'll call it what it is, human sin. Within environmental disaster, famine, drought, economic justice, and disease and war, we can hear a call to repentance. 
We can let Jesus turning the water into wine be more than a clever story. It can stand as a reminder that God will provide and we can help. The communion hymn, Let the Vineyards Be Fruitful, can put us in the right frame of mind. We sing, let the vineyards be fruitful, Lord, and fill to the brim our cup of blessings. Gather a harvest from the seeds that were sown, that we may be fed with the bread of life. Gather the hopes and dreams of all. Unite them with the prayers we offer. Grace our table with your presence, and give us a foretaste of the feast to come. Take a minute. And think of all the daily miracles that occur in your life and all the blessings that God provides you with daily without you even asking. Then just think, he's saving the best wine for last. Amen. Thank you for joining me, and I hope that you will come back in the meantime, may God bless you and provide for your every need with abundance. May God look upon you with favor and give you peace 